Hey, my friends, welcome to Word Made Digital. I am your host, Wendell Fleur. This is season three, episode 14. Today on the show, we have Andy Bannister. If you don't know Andy, he's the director of Solace Center for Public Christianity, and he's an adjunct speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. So he speaks and teaches all around UK and Europe and Canada and USA and all over the world from universities to churches to businesses. He's been on TV. He writes articles for newspapers and magazines. He's been on the radio. He's a speaker and thinker around Christian apologetics. He actually also has a PhD in Islamic studies, and he's looking at basically how to talk about Jesus without looking like a jerk or an idiot in front of the people that you're talking to. He's uh, also teaching a course right now on apologetics. It is an online course at Wycliffe College this semester. And as you know, if you're a regular listener, Wycliffe College is one of the sponsors of this season of the podcast. And so this course is called An Introduction to Christian Apologetics, the Art and Science of Christian Persuasion. So when I found out that he was at Wycliffe, I thought it would be an opportunity to get a guy who's a little bit hard to get for a podcast because he's just so busy and he's often on uh, really very large media platforms. So his latest book is called The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. And it's basically like a funny late night talk show style engagement around new atheism. So if you're looking for how to communicate your faith better in 2020, and you're looking at how to have conversations with people who think differently than you in a way that's kind, charitable, and also meaningful, you're going to love the conversation today about how we can communicate our faith and dialogue with others. Thanks so much to all the sponsors who are joining for this season of the podcast. For the next number of episodes, I really want to let you know about Fluid, this young adults gathering. It's the ninth annual Fluid Conference on Saturday, March 7th, 2020 in Toronto. So if you're a young adult in the Toronto area or you can get to the Toronto area on Saturday, March 7th, you can join about 1,500 young adults from all over the area. It's actually the largest young adults conference in Canada. 2020 guests for the conference that that I go to every year. So I'll be there. I'd love to see you there. The guests this year include best-selling author Rebecca Lyons. We have artists Shane and Shane. We have Pastor Mark Clark speaking and many more. Go to fluidgathering.com. The link's in the show notes. You can check out more about the conference. Maybe you want to come by yourself. You want to bring a friend. You want to bring a group. You want to tell others about it. You don't want to miss this. I don't miss it. Every year I go to Fluid Gathering, so I think you're going to love it. Thanks also, of course, to Compassion, who's sponsoring and partnering with me on season three of the podcast. I want to let you know about an opportunity to get involved and to volunteer at an upcoming event. Compassion connects people across Canada with children living in extreme poverty around the world. And so this year alone, more than 80,000 Canadians are part of life-changing uh, life-changing work through sponsorship, helping to transform lives of thousands and thousands, 111,000 kids around the world are being sponsored by Canadians through Compassion. There's a ton of ways to get involved with Compassion. I've been learning more and more about it myself as I'm getting more and more involved, which is why I want you to get more and more involved and there's all these ways that we can meet extreme poverty with life-changing work that changes them that changes us I just love it Uh, more and more as I've said to the team over compassion I keep running into now compassion people everywhere Uh, it's been amazing over the course of the last few months how I've been realizing the impact of compassion in the church in Canada and the impact on the church in North America and beyond 
So there's a ton of ways you can get involved in Compassion's work. Maybe you want to sponsor a child. You can give to an urgent need, like something going on right now as a crisis in the world. You can also attend an event or volunteer. So there's this amazing event coming up at venues across Canada with Four King and Country. They're doing a tour in March 2020, and they've got a whole lineup of cities across Canada. So maybe you want to come to the For King and Country concert, or if you didn't get a ticket, uh, maybe you want to volunteer because the concert is sold out, but maybe uh, you want to volunteer. So Compassion is going to be with For King and Country in Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Calgary, and Vancouver. If you want to get involved as a volunteer, email volunteer at compassion.ca to find out more information. The link's going to be down in the show notes. And if concerts aren't your thing or you live too far away, but you'd love to be involved in how to make impact in life-changing work in the life of a child who is in extreme poverty, you can check out Compassion's volunteer page anytime, compassion.ca slash volunteer. And you can find out about how to meaningfully use your passion, maybe your creative passion, your communications passion, what passion, whatever you skills are you can use those with compassion you can check that out in the link in the show notes finally a shout out to Wycliffe College of course as I've said Andy Bannister who's on the podcast today he happens to be teaching a course right now at Wycliffe online so I'm really happy to partner with Wycliffe because they bring amazing thinkers like Andy Bannister to us giving us access to uh, really global thinking on Christianity and theology and the church and religion in light of the world we're living in today. So whether you want to just take a course like Andy Bannister's or you want to do something in person or you want to do something um, in the long term or just take a take a, a one-off thing, whatever it may be, I want you to check out wickliffcollegeca slash digital. There's all kind of information there about how their programs might connect with you and what you're trying to learn. They're really trying to grow people as disciples of Jesus, not just as academic scholars, but also in your own discipleship. So go to wickliffcollegeca slash digital. You can find out why I chose the school and what I love about it. And I think you're going to love it too. Okay, here's the conversation with Andy Bannister. Enjoy. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 3, sponsored by Compassion Canada and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Well, I have with me today Dr. Andy Bannister, and uh, you're coming up to us from the UK. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. It's uh, great to be with you, uh, Joanna. So yeah, I'm coming from the UK uh, in Scotland, uh, to be precise, up in the uh, north of the UK, about an hour north of Edinburgh, uh, for listeners who kind of know our part of the world. Yeah, I was just in Edinburgh for the first time about a month ago, and it's stunning. I kept saying to myself, why have I not been here before? <laughs> so yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's a secret part of the UK. Everyone comes over and does, like, London and stuff. But, yeah, no, don't do that. Come come north. <laughs> so, Andy, you are uh, really uh, an expert and a thinker around ideas of how to communicate Jesus and and faith that is reasonable, uh, faith that is that makes sense to our minds and makes sense um, to the arguments that people might have against it. So I think the conversation today, I just kind of want to throw some things your way and see what sticks. But under the big theme of, um, let's just start with this. 
talk to me about the the big fear for people when they talk about Jesus today, because in a very complex world, is ultimately how to talk about Jesus without looking like an idiot. <laughs> how do we yeah. communicate Jesus without looking like an idiot in 2020? Well, that's a brilliant setup, Gerardo, because there's a talk I do regularly called How to Talk About Jesus Without Looking Like an Idiot. And that title actually is interesting. I was I used to do sort of really boring things like, you know, talks called you know, conversational evangelism or engaging the culture and all those things. And then finally, I think after one of these, I was chatting to somebody in the coffee line or somewhere, and it was sort of kind of regular, ordinary kind of churchgoer somewhere uh, who sort of turned to me and said, basically, you're teaching us how to talk about Jesus without looking like an idiot. And I was like, that's <laughs> right. Okay, actually, I said you could have that one. So, um, so that's the title I've used for the last three or four years now. I'm working a book on the same title. And what I think I like about it is exactly as you picked up, it gets to the heart of the issue. Most Christians, we theologize it, we try and sort of bury it under other kind of cult subtext. But it comes down to, I don't want to talk about Jesus without looking stupid, without getting fired, without losing my friends. Yeah. Um, you know, how can we do that? And I think that is the question. Um, I think there are lots of really easy to learn tools that you can that there to help you do that. But I think often as the church, uh, I think our churches are not doing that. We're sort of playing the theological games. We're doing great exegesis, you know, preaching the word. But we're not actually helping people think about, okay, how do I take this great content and great truth and then engage it to people in a way that our friends and our neighbors and colleagues go, oh, okay, yeah, I want to hear you again on this subject, as the Athenians say to Paul in Acts 17. Hmm. And so uh, maybe I'm even maybe I'm even jumping the gun with the premise of the question how to talk about Jesus. I think I certainly think in my own culture in Canada, maybe it's true in the UK. I don't know what it would be like in the in all parts of the US, but even the assumption that we should talk about Jesus. I find today a lot of people think we shouldn't. That you know, it's your private faith uh and it's not to be shared. So so maybe I'm even jumping to an assumption that we should talk about him. But what are you finding yes. as you go around and talk to people? Are people even believing anymore that you should talk about Jesus because yeah. it's so offensive, because it's so divisive or it yes. it could be. Well, that's a, I'm glad you have backed up actually because this is great very postmodern conversation. We'll go all over the <laughs> map and um, yeah, I think there's two things going on related to that, Joanna. I think one is that I think a lot of Christians um, kind of feel they should, but feel very guilty um, for not knowing how to. And so, you know, that guilt gets them just locked up in saying nothing. And then out of that, sometimes we reverse engineer it. So rather than admit we feel guilty and afraid, then we leap to things like, oh, well, you know, we live in a postmodern culture. We can't possibly tell other people, you know, that what they believe is wrong. But how would you, we tell people they're wrong all the time. We tell people in politics. Every time we have an election, people are quite capable of going, well, I'm liberal, I'm conservative. We think you're wrong. I think you're wrong. Usually we do that without killing each other. Sometimes not always. Um, but I think we in other in other areas we have no problem. Um, I think the other issue that's uh, that's going on there too. I just wonder also perhaps in some parts of the church if we've ended up with too small a view of the gospel. We have reduced the gospel to just kind of like me and Jesus, and then mm. it becomes this very kind of personal thing that doesn't have an impact in the wider world. But I think actually if you take the gospel seriously, if the gospel is true, it does change everything. It changes absolutely everything. It changes how we think about science and politics and the environment and ethics and so on and so forth. So there really is no square inch of the world that doesn't belong to Jesus. And I wonder sometimes if we don't actually really believe that or we haven't fully mm -hmm. embraced that. And then actually, lastly, to add another one, I think the other issue in there sometimes 
is sometimes in parts of the church we've convinced ourselves that evangelism no longer works and we're afraid we're afraid that gosh if i talked about my faith and nothing happened would that somehow then damage my own faith because i wouldn't be able to trust jesus anymore and one of the things i find is really helpful is connecting christians to great stories of god at work and god is tremendously at work i was in canada for six years he's at work in canada people are becoming christians all the time it's amazing and here in the mm. uk yeah, we're in a secular context, and yes, it's tough. But wow, stuff is happening. People become Christians. When you preach the gospel, guess what? People respond. And uh, it's an exciting time to be a Christian. And I think we need to tell ourselves, we need to hear more of those stories and go, you know what? Evangelism works. It is possible to share our faith in a way that means we hold the truth, but we don't uh, We don't uh, alienate those who don't agree with what we think. And you know what? It is possible to talk about Jesus without looking like an idiot. So what are you what are you finding is uh well I mean ultimately what is the climate that we're entering into um because I think for a lot of Christians, it's easy to get in a little bubble of whatever the Christian circle you're in. And maybe one of the reasons you're not communicating Jesus to other people is just because you're in a bubble of other people who are already all believe the same thing as you. But what are you seeing in the West? I mean, because it's, it's very different in other parts of the world uh, as trends of, of sort of like, what is the age that we live in? And yes. uh and what is the reality of our time? I mean, it's a huge question in some ways. <laughs> it is. And there's so many good things in there, Joanna, as well. I mean, let me start with something you said that, that really resonates. The fact that it's a Western bubble, I think, is helpful to realize. Helpful for us to realize. Helpful, actually, for our skeptical friends to realize. Because sometimes when I have, you know, skeptical friends or acquaintances who make some sort of negative comments about faith, it's quite fun to look at them and go, what a remarkably Western-centric viewpoint, because huh. that presses the red button. No one wants to be, uh, you know, just a naive little Westerner. And you go, so you do realise that in the rest of the world, people take faith really, really seriously. It's it's the animating feature to go, you know, the biggest Christian country is not America. You know, the, the biggest Christian country now is potentially China, or very close to being. The fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. And to go, I think sometimes wow. both Christians and also and non-Christian friends have too small a view. So I think that's the first thing. But the other thing in terms of the bubble piece, you know, obviously we're going to talk about digital uh, culture and stuff, you know, as we go, given the nature of your podcast. One of the phenomena that has been talked about in digital tech is this phenomena that's being christened digital flocking, which is this tendency that we have online to gravitate to people just like us. You know, there was a fascinating piece of work done after the last election in the, in the USA in 2016. Um, whenever it was, showing that, uh, you know, people who are who lean Democrat just hang out online with Democratic friends and Democratic forums and Democratic discussion groups, only quote their own side and say rude things about the other side. The same is true on the other side. Republicans yeah. do exactly the same. And this piece of research just looked at and then applied it more broadly. And the problem is this is one of the, the, the one of the good things the Internet has, has given us is the ability connect, to connect across borders very, very easily. The downside is it's remarkably easy to find people identical to you. So if you are a, you are a one legged gay Star Trek fan who leans <laughs> left wing, you can find other people who just share your tiny little subgroup and you very can hang niche. out. Yeah. And Christians can do the same. And the first challenge, I think, as you raised in the question, we need to get outside the bubble. We need to get outside right. the bubble online. We need to get outside the bubble in the real world. 
Right. It's, you know, I saw a, a friend of mine who's living in the UK um, after you just had an election and after that she posted uh, on social media about the echo chamber and why she was surprised about the results of the election because she was acknowledging she lived in an echo chamber where everyone in her own little world agreed with a particular political viewpoint and then they were shocked when that viewpoint didn't win the election because they were just yes. talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Is it very interesting you say that? Is you right? We've just been through an election, and I had the the same experience. I I, I you know I voted for the party that, that that won this particular election, but I realised all of my online all of my online friends actually were the opposite, and that my Facebook feed was full of people, you know, really depressed and anxious. And I remember thinking, what do I say here? I can't suddenly come out all triumphalistic. So <laughs> I, I think on Friday night I just posted Andy Bannister is feeling happy. I just waited for what Which emoji can we use to not start a to fight? To sort of say I'm happy, but I don't <laughs> Yeah, you're right. We do, we do sometimes live in, in echo chambers. And I think the other thing, actually, with the online world, I think the election in the UK has shown this, is that, and I think the American election showed something similar, that if you live in the online bubble, you forget the rest, the, most of the rest of the world is not online. So for those of us who love the digital world, most people, most, most uh, UK folks, most Canadians do not spend all of their life on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Right. And as Christians, we can sometimes think, oh, gosh, everyone's very hostile. And then you get out there and talk to people and you find they're not. You know, I remember finding being quite surprised when I first moved to Canada that the average secular Canadian university student was not a radical, foaming, liberal secularist. There were lots huh. of people that were like, oh, I've never really thought about Christianity before. So, you know, what is this Christianity thing? And I got a lot right. of that. People who didn't know anything, but were actually over a coffee, very willing to talk. But I'd, I'd assumed that the little microcosm I saw on, online, the little bubble, represented uh, the reality. And I don't think it does. Right. Well, and it's, it's that idea of the silent majority, I guess, that can really exasperate itself online, that that there most there are a few you know i'm going to say angry atheists or angry anti-christian people that might make you very fearful uh, to come because what I don't have all the answers. I don't know what to say to this person. I don't want to start. I'm not an argumentative person by nature. I don't want to get involved with this. But actually, you're saying that you find over and over that there are many people who are not angry or they're curious about discussing these yeah. issues in a reasonable way. Yeah. I think so. I mean, to go, you know, we find that when I go out and do ministry, find that, find that personally. My, you know, my, my, in the sort of three years we lived in Scotland, we've got to know, you know, our neighbours quite well. And there's one particular kind of neighbour my, my wife has become friends with through our, chat through our children. And I think she's kind of watched us mysteriously, can't figure us out. And then finally, I think, you know, I think she said to my wife one day when they were having coffee, so what is it exactly Andy does? And my wife explained to her. And then he just gently went from there, I think she's very nervous about organised religion. She's had bad experiences with church, but this opened up into quite a fascinating kind of conversation. But you know, outwardly, presenters not interested. It's taken two and a half years to to build the trust, but now right. there's quite a spiritual conversation um, developing. Right, and I think I often talk on this podcast about how Christianity has a PR problem. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. I think Christ, uh, Christians, uh, the message of Jesus, I you know, I ultimately believe is the best news, not just good news, it's the best news in the world, but often we are not, we should be, but are not the best communicators of the best news. We sh if, if we have the best news, we should be the best communicators, but somehow we continue to fumble and drop the ball. And so, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about 
in it's a broad conversation, but around atheism. I think atheism is it has moved from fringe to trendy. It's become uh, hip atheism, and when I'm thinking about PR and what's getting good marketing right now, atheism and the those who write about it and speak about it are trending in um, in the news, in media, in book sales, um, and religion is viewed as you know archaic and in some ways, in in many ways, dangerous. So talk to me about atheism uh, as a, as a belief system and how you would talk to an atheist. Mm. Well, there's a, there's a number of things to, to dig into there. I think one of the interesting things, I think culturally, I think sometimes, I think that in terms of secularism, I think the UK at times leads the trend. Canada lags a little bit behind and the Americans well behind that what's interesting here, I think the atheist bubble has burst. Interestingly enough, I think huh. someone like Richard Dawkins, uh, with his famous book The God Delusion, a few years ago. I mean, that when that came out over ten years ago now, we had exactly that. Atheism suddenly became trendy. Now it's seen as slightly a, you know, those kind of guys are seen as slightly a figure of fun. He's seen almost as an old kind of preachy, boring old guy. So I think huh. it's interesting. One of my one of my observations to atheists in the media would be just be careful because the media is a is a bit of a savage beast. Once you're no longer feeding it and you're trendy, suddenly it moves on. And and so I think Canada is a little bit behind the curve there. I think Tyler like Dawkins is getting bigger audiences in North America than he is. He is over here. Um, I think the iconoclasm, the media like, you know, iconoclasm smashing is always makes stories, right? It makes it makes it makes headlines. Now, the thing is, I'd say to Christians, we can be scared by that. But I don't think we should be for a couple of reasons. Firstly, one of my experiences that actually partly led me to, to write my last book on atheism was talking to lots of atheist friends. And I wrote that book when I was in Canada. So on that side of the pond, and the same is true over here, I would mention that I was writing a book engaging with the likes of Dawkins and other uh, atheists. And the response from atheist friends would always be like, please don't assume that we're all like Dawkins. And that was interesting. I think mm. sometimes I think within the atheist community, um, there could be this tendency to go, well, hang on a minute. He doesn't represent us. I remember actually in one of the atheists that I did quite a few uh, dialogues with him when I was in Canada, who I who I really enjoy dialogue with. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a well-known Canadian atheist called Justin Trottier and uh, based in Toronto. And Justin and I, we did various things together. People can find them online. And Justin's great. We had some great conversations. And he was one of that category of going, please don't label us all with the with the with the angry new atheist um, label. So I think for Christians who hear this in the media, don't assume that your atheist friends and colleagues and, 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 and neighbours are necessarily angry atheists. Some may be. In terms of starting a conversation, Joanna, when someone self-identifies to me as an atheist, I found a really helpful way to begin. It can sometimes be with a with a sort of twinkle in your eye to lead with the question, you know, interesting that you, you could say atheist tells me what you don't believe. You don't believe in God. But what do you believe? You know, what gets huh. you out of bed in the morning? What are you passionate about? What do you think the most important things in life are? Um, because, you know, as a Christian, you know, I don't believe in the tooth fairy. But if I describe myself as an atootharian, it wouldn't tell you about <laughs> what I do believe. Um, so that Firstly, it breaks the ice a little bit, and it it breaks the ice. Uh, But it also gets your atheist friend to be thinking about, you know, well, what do I believe? Rather than just the rather just the 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 negative. Um, You know, somebody once said that I think you know there are four basic questions that every human being has to answer. They have to answer the question of you know, is there a god and what is he like? Um, What does it mean to be human? Um, what's wrong with the world and what's the solution? Atheists have to grapple with those questions too. And simply because their answer to the first one is I don't believe in God, they still have to answer the other three questions. 
what is a human being? Are we just atoms and particles and molecules? Or are we more than that? Do we have real value and dignity? You know, what's gone wrong with the world? Everybody thinks something has gone wrong with the world. Um, you know, what is it? Uh, what's the problem? And then what's the solution? Um, and the great thing is Christianity has a lot to say to those. Sometimes our atheist friends think all they have to do is deny the first question and they can, nothing to add. Christians sometimes think all we have to do is answer yes to the first question and it stops. Um, wow. And actually those four questions, I find a really helpful grid for, for chatting uh, with my atheist and skeptical friends. And, you know, when you're having these conversations, is your is your goal to win, quote unquote? Are you trying to are you trying to find them with a land them in a place that uh, they don't have an answer? Like, what do you you know, are you what are you trying to do when you're having the conversation? Yeah. Do you know, I confess when I started out, I confess I was probably far more of the kind of trying to win mentality or the kind of gotcha moment which christians because others feel we want to go for you know, the moment where our skeptical friend goes ha ha i don't know the answer to that and you go right. gotcha that is i don't think the goal for a number of reasons firstly it makes it very combative secondly it makes you feel terrible if you lose and thirdly it makes you feel very you know cocky if you if you win i think ultimately what i'm trying to do is help the person see that jesus is somebody i might want to think seriously uh, about and um you know the back of my mind i think in those conversations now uh, joanna is how can i how can i naturally not in a forced way bring jesus into the into the conversation and there are some great ways to do that i suppose i'm always looking in the conversation for when i can segue through things like uh you know saying you know what you just said there reminds me of something that jesus said uh what you just mm. said there reminds me of something jesus did something you just said there reminds me of a story that jesus told because then i'm bridging to jesus and i found over the years interesting people a lot of people have difficulty with the, with organized religion lots of people have difficulty with god amazing how many people are actually intrigued by jesus uh, and the sooner we get the conversation there, naturally, it makes it an easier conversation, I think. Hmm. No, I love that. And I appreciate that. I think for a lot of people, the the reason they're afraid to talk about their faith is because they feel like it's an argument and they don't know how to win it. So they don't want to get, they're going to, they don't want to get in the ring because they don't want to fight and they're going to lose. <laughs> and so I appreciate what you're saying. And I'm hearing underneath what you're saying too, when you talk about your atheist, you call him a, you call your atheist a friend, your atheist friend, and you describe the person you, you would have regular conversations with in Toronto when you lived here uh, as someone you enjoyed talking to. And so I think underneath what you're saying is you've been learning ultimately how to have a loving relationship with someone who might disagree with you. Uh, and as a, as a baseline, if you don't love this person, how, yeah. how can you enter the conversation in the first place? Um, it's going to end badly. <laughs> yeah. There's a great little book actually written by a, a, a friend of mine who's a, who's a Canadian. There's a, there's a great kind of Canadian, um, theologian and, and apologist based out in Alberta called uh, Randall Rouser. And Randall wrote a wonderful little book a few years ago called Is the Atheist My Neighbor? It's a wonderful mm. book because it's it's very much that kind of tone of going, how do we think about this in terms of, you know, rather than seeing our athe atheists as, as the enemy, see them as your friends, see them as your neighbors, see them as, and take a genuine interest. I think if you take a genuine interest in people, because um, that question you asked earlier, you're trying to win. I think if it's perceived as that's what we're trying to do, yeah, there's a problem. But if our atheist friend pick up, look, you know, we think Jesus is the best news ever. And because that, we want you to discover that too. But ultimately, I want to, 
I want to understand you. I want to know what makes you think. I know what makes you tick. Um, and I want to do that in a way that, you know, isn't looking for the first opportunity to whack you over the head. And I think when Christians do that, you know, I think amazing things happen. I think sometimes we have a reputation for being people who want to always try and win or people who are difficult to talk to. And it's ironic, right? We're scared of talking to our secular friends. And sometimes our secular friends are a bit nervous about talking to Christians. And there has yeah. to be a better way, a better way of doing this. Yeah. So you say you try to focus the conversation around Jesus, his life, something he taught, something he turned on its head. Um, what is so as you as you know and research religions of the world and have conversations with people of other religions, what is it that's so special about Jesus? What is it that stands out in the conversations yeah. about Jesus, and why are people attracted to him, even if they don't well, like Christianity? Could, yeah. <laughs> Well, there's a whole range of answers there, but we could say a number of things. I think, I think, firstly, Jesus, Jesus is unique, even for people who don't believe in Christianity. Um, you can demonstrate that he's unique. I often like to begin by saying, look, if you were to make two lists, on one list you were to write the names of the most influential people in history, on the other list the names of people who've claimed to be God, only one person turns up on both those lists, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. So again, that makes him he makes him fascinating. I often say right. to eight skeptical friends, you know, it's interesting, if you look at all the founders of the world's religions, one of the interesting things is you could remove the founder of any of those other religions from history, and they could still stand. If the Buddha had never been born, someone else could have started Buddhism. If Muhammad had never been born, somebody else could have started Islam. Christianity, on the, on the other hand, is not a set of teachings brought by Jesus. It is Jesus. It's his identity, his personality, his, his, mm -hmm. his very, him, him very self. And as somebody once remarked, take Christ out of Christian, and you're left with the letters I, A, and N, and Ian can't really help you. Um, <laughs> So that alone, I, I use that as a way to intrigue people and say, I think it's, you know, given the influence of this guy, and then also given the fact that, you know, by every hist possible historical metric, Jesus should have had precisely no influence. You know, he was born in the backwater of the Roman Empire. He led a ragtag band of followers around largely the rural parts of Judea, only visiting Jerusalem occasionally. He was ignored by the mainstream religious leaders and certainly political leaders, finally, you know, crucified for his religious and political claims to be Messiah. And uh, we know about lots of other leaders of ragtag bunch of Jews in the first century who claimed to be Messiah. They got crucified or killed and their movement died out. What was it about the Jesus movement that that didn't happen? And all of those questions I'm trying to use to steer the person into taking a look at Jesus. But success for me is if I can bring someone to a point where they're willing to read the Gospels and at least mm. ask themselves the question, the question that Jesus regularly asked his followers in the crowds, who do you say that I am. So that's where right. I want to begin um, before I get on some of the loftier claims of Jesus. I want to intrigue people and tease them and get them into going, I should take a look at this this guy. Right. Um, and I, I think within that, I don't know how much time we have to talk about this, but one of the, the most significant pieces is, did Jesus, is it reasonable that Jesus could have risen from the dead? Yeah. Uh, if he, and, and is what I love what Paul says, you know, if, I love how it's said in the message, uh, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then this is all smoke and mirrors. Uh, and we should be pitied above all other people yeah. to even, to believe that this man rose from the dead. So do you, like, you obviously, you find reasonable claim to the miracles yeah. and the, the signs and wonders yeah. of Jesus. Oh, gee, yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, I, 
the resurrection, we'll talk about the resurrection in a second. The other one I like to come in before the resurrection is I like to sometimes, the way I build through is I look at some of the claims of Jesus, you know, things like I am the way, the truth, and the life, and other kind of outrageous claims. Um, they're pretty outrageous unless he was who he really claimed to be. And then, of course, here we are recording this. I don't know when it's being broadcast, but recording this in Christmas season. Um, the incarnation is by far the, the miracle I like to really begin with because huh. that claim that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, if he really is God come in the flesh, you know, water into wine, raising people from the dead, those kind of things, not really a great problem. Um, but how might we know if he really is God come in the flesh? Well, the resurrection, as you put it, 1 Corinthians 15 and other New Testament passages make that the chief miracle um, that demonstrates that. And the thing is, we are on such great evidence for the resurrection. Um, I just did a debate at St. Andrew's University, one of Scotland's premier universities a few weeks ago, a room at least sort of 40, 50% packed with skeptics on the resurrection. And it was just so exciting because you reminded the evidence is so overwhelming. And afterwards we had atheist after atheist and skeptic after skeptic. I think actually wow. quite shaken by how good uh, the evidence, the historical evidence for the resurrection. And I think that's, that's a great place to, to, to go. Absolutely. And if people wanted to, because we can't go into it all here, yeah. uh, would you have a resource, a book, a video, yeah. a website? Where should where should someone go Absolutely. to learn why the resurrection is reasonable? Yeah. Absolutely. So the place I could recommend people to go, um, the organization that I lead here in uh, Scotland, the Solas Center, S-O-L-A-S, Solas Center for Public Christianity. We do a resource, Joanna, called the, called the Short Answers video series. Uh, it's an online resource. You can find it on Facebook and on our website. And every yeah, and, we'll uh, link, week, and we can link yeah. it in the show notes too. Brilliant. There you go. So basically, we do a three to four, four minute video every fortnight, looking at uh, one of those questions. And we've got uh, episodes on the resurrection. So encourage listeners go take a look, and that will give you the kind of four to five minutes uh, package answer to that. You could do longer answers, but yeah, the resurrection evidence is so good you can outline it in about four to five minutes flat, and those videos will help you do that. Wow. And I mean, that's interesting. It's another reminder, as you say. Uh, when when you lay out the evidence to people who are interested in having the conversation, they're actually surprised at how much evidence there is. Uh, as in they haven't, maybe someone we're talking to just hasn't actually given the thought to Christianity before. They're not angry about it. They just have really never given it a chance to consider it as a reasonable way to yeah. live your life. Yeah. Um, and that said, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of this thing I, I saw you were talking about on your website, but I've seen this before. Um, that is, uh, you know, when we're on a, a podcast about communications and creativity, um, atheist advertising. Uh, I w I'm curious what you think we can learn, particularly there was this campaign. Uh, it was on buses. It was in a few other places yeah. all over the UK. An atheist organization was paying to have ads that said, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And these were billboards that were <laughs> all over buses and everywhere else. What do you think we can learn as Christians about their approach? Um, and, you know, how they were sort of in inviting people to consider their own religion, really. Well, there's a couple of things there. I love the fact you put religion. I think it really did finally call out that atheism is a belief system. And atheists don't like being reminded of this. I don't want to do this in a cocky kind of way, but I do like to point to my atheist friends. If if you put, you know, atheist in your social media profile, you are now using that as a religious identity. 
badge. And it's clearly more than just uh, the absence of belief in God. And that's exciting. I'm glad that atheists are finally stepping up and realising they have a belief system. Um, mm-hmm. Secondly, I think it was a wonderful opportunity when our atheist friends paid for those buses and billboards. In fact, I had a friend in London when the atheist bus campaign kicked off. He was leader of a Christian organisation in London. He chipped into the fundraising campaign because he went, this is brilliant. Because he said afterwards, it was a great opportunity. You stand there at a bus stop and this bus would go by and you could turn to your fellow you know, people in the queue and go, what, what's that all about then? And he said he, he, would, he would use it to start conversations. Um, and then I think the third thing we can learn, I love learning. I think as Christians, we should be particularly learning how can we learn to communicate and learn about communication from those who are not necessarily Christians. I think we can learn a lot from business. You know, I learned more about how to do a, a slide deck when I speak from watching someone like Steve Jobs, you know, who would, when he launched Apple products would make you think that he was the messiah. Um, I learned more. <laughs> from, I learned a lot about public speaking from watching stand-up comedians. And I think in terms of like, you know, short, pithy sound bites, um, while I think it's wrong-headed, the, there's probably no God and stop, stop worrying, enjoy your life. It's very clever because it's short and sweet and it makes you think. And maybe, you know, Christians rather than you know, criticize it, we should have gone, okay, what's the Christian version of this? What about, right. you know, there, 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 there probably is a God, so maybe you're worth more than the sum total of your molecules, question mark, or something. Um, you know, t- intriguing things. And ours yeah. and AM, Ravi Zacharias Ministries that I led in Canada for a few years, the year after I left, ran a really clever advertising campaign across across radio, actually, where that called uh, around the idea of just wondering, and have you ever wondered? Um, and I think maybe as Christians, if we did more that intrigued people, have you ever thought about, have you ever considered, could it just mm. possibly be? But that's a great line in conversations with sceptical friends, Jana, I found sometimes, rather than go for it is the case, to say to your friend, could it be possible that is interesting. Mm. It's a more open-ended mm. question. Well, as we're meandering down this path, I, I want to, to, before we finish the conversation, I want to talk a little bit about science. Um, yeah. It seems that it has been, unfortunately, opposed to Christianity or religion and science have, have for some reason, taken opposite sides, um, you know, for, for a few hundred years of history, really. Um, talk to me about... Um, what is happening in science today? What is someone who says, I don't believe in, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. I've heard that many times. Um, what would you say to someone who loves science, who leans into science as the way to find answers, meaning where did the answer to where did we come from? Uh, what would you say to someone who loves that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think I'd want to begin actually by saying, you know, it's sad in a sense that some people think that, uh, that science and and faith are are at war with each other. And it's important, I think, for Christians to push back on that, because historically that's actually nonsense. It's known as the conflict thesis, and it's not hasn't been going on for hundreds of years, actually. We now know historians of science huh. have traced where it goes back to. It goes back to two gentlemen, actually, John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White, who both lived in the uh, in the in the eighteen hundreds. And both had a particular agenda uh, to advance and were really, I think, trying to sort of, you know, advance sort of, you know, the power of science and the scientific institutions over the church. Had basically almost well, single-handed, there were two of them, really uh, popularised that that myth. But it is a myth, and now, really, I say, among historians of science, it's not taken, it's not taken seriously. Because, firstly, of course, 
Christianity is the birthplace of science. All the first scientists were, were, were Christians or had religious faith. Uh, in fact, a lot of the first scientists before it was professional class were, were clergymen because it was clergymen who had the time, uh, you know, to go out collecting butterflies and doing experiments and so forth. So the kind of sort of idea of the gentleman scientist um, in the Victorian era, those were largely uh, religious believers. And then we get, of course, to, uh, it's interesting when you look around the time of Darwin, Darwin is often raised as the great, you know, atheist, a great railing against science, against Christianity. You know, a lot of his early friends and supporters, when he was trying to get his theory of natural selection advanced, were Christians who saw this actually as a great testament to the amazing creativity of God, rather than some great atheist weapon. So it's very recently that science has been has been weaponized uh, and used against the the church. So I would say to people who love the sciences to go. Actually, science, so Christianity is the natural home for science. And even today, there are surveys that are done. Seventy five percent of scientists, um, you know, have a have a faith in God. Um, there was an amazing piece of research done out of Rice University in uh, in the USA uh, back in 2016, where the professor heading that up, I think, interviewed 2,000 scientists who have a uh, 10,000. Just checking the facts actually while I was doing 10,000 scientists, eight countries uh, who had 70% uh, of them had a PhD or higher, and 75% of them uh, saw uh, had saw were not atheists. Uh, the vast majority, 70%, said there's no conflict between science and religion. So the list goes on and on and on. So I think we need to really address at the core the idea that science and religious faith are antithetical. You can be a scientist to be a Christian. You can be an atheist to be a Christian. The science is really neutral, um, largely because, of course, science is really designed to tell us what happens in a world of atoms and particles and stuff. It isn't designed to tell us why there is stuff in the first place. And the very, right. the very question, why is there something rather than nothing, that is not a scientific question. That's a metaphysical question. Um, and there are, there are atheist philosophers who are wrestling with that question. There are Christian philosophers and thinkers who will tell you, I think by far, Christian faith is the best answer to that question. Um, but yeah, science is not a religious position. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I, I sometimes feel embarrassed as a Christian about other Christians trying to strong arm what I would say is scientific facts or proofs of things in the world to yes. fit their Christian worldview. And I, and I, when I say hundreds of years, what I, I think of like the, when uh, the problem, when it was discovered that the world was in fact round, it was a problem because it didn't fit how they read the scriptures of the world being flat to the ends of the earth, this kind of language of a flat surface. And so, you know, these people were, you know, in, in many cases, you know, people were persecuted, jailed, killed, told to be silent for their scientific discoveries. Um, and then even today, it seems that there are some things that feel very embarrassing to me about Christian uh, Christian movements that are trying to force uh, scientific discoveries into yeah. the writings of the Bible. Absolutely. I think there's two issues going on today, and I love actually playing them off against each other, because depending which community you're talking to, um, I think I am embarrassed by both atheists at one end of the spectrum who want to try and weaponize science and suggest that you can use it to disprove God. I think that dam damages science, actually. And huh. on the other hand, you have Christians on, who are literally the mirror image of that 
who have in many ways actually probably even bought into that and go, well, science is a dangerous thing, so we therefore need to kind of grab it and manipulate it and, and sort of defang it so it's safe for Christians. Both misuse science. I think science is one of God's greatest gifts to us. In fact, one of the interesting things, I think science actually raises religious questions. It doesn't answer them. One of the big questions I think it raises that is a really exciting one for Christians to engage their atheist friends with is, why do science in the first place? You know, if the science that you're doing is maybe to discover a cure for cancer or, you know, something that has a direct benefit, you can mount a case, I guess. But I had a friend years ago who was doing a PhD in the, in the perhaps the mating habits of some type of tree frog in the Amazonian rainforest. I remember asking her, <laughs> why are you doing that? And she said, well, because it's really interesting. And I remember thinking, that's a good answer, but it's a Christian answer. Because God has made us, you know, unbelievably curious. You know, as it says mm -hmm. in the book of Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity into the hearts of humankind. If, if atheism is true and our only function is to survive and reproduce and pass our selfish genes on to the next generation, then science is purely incidental, you know, purely incidental. Christianity, I think, we are designed by God to be, you know, uh, unbelievably curious. That's why, uh, you know, we do science. That's why we go to the moon, 50th anniversary of the moon landings. That's why, you know, we explore the far-flung corners of the world, because, because God has made us for more than just survival and reproduction. And I think uh, that, that scientific curiosity is a sort of accidental argument for the, for the Christian faith. Yeah. I mean, we, I wish we had so much more time. There's so many more huh. topics we could go into. You know, I, I want to point people to your resources when we talk about other religions. We, we haven't even touched anything to do with Mus Muslims, Islam. I know you have a ton of experience and passion for talking to our Muslim friends about faith and, you know, do we worship the same God and all these kinds of questions that you have resources on your website. I'm going to point people to. Brilliant. Um, uh, I also, for, uh, there's a few more questions I want to jump to. One is uh, your book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. Yep. I have a quote that it's been described as John Stewart meets C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I mean, you got me already. I haven't read the book, but that phrase, I love John Stewart. I love C.S. Lewis. I'm sold. I'm literally going to buy the book. Uh, tell us about this book. So that book very quickly grew out of something you asked about earlier, all that atheist advertising and, and, and media attention a few years ago. And I got quite frustrated that these were our atheist friends in the media were putting forward terribly bad arguments, awful arguments, actually. Um, Christians were writing really good books in response with very careful responses, but no one was reading those books because they weren't, yeah. they were hard to read. And I then came across something that C.S. Lewis once said. C.S. Lewis once said, when talking about why he was writing fiction, he said, you know, I came to realize that the front door of people's minds are guarded by watchful dragons who won't let, you know, arguments and reason and, and stuff through. But he said, I just wondered whether using narrative, I might, you, one might tiptoe past those watchful dragons and go through the side door. Well, I can't write fiction. That's not my skill. But I have been told I am allegedly quite funny. And I suddenly thought, <laughs> I, wonder if you could tickle, I wonder if you might tickle the dragon under the nose. And while it's rolling on the floor laughing, charge through the front door anyway. And wow. that's what that book tries to do. It tries to use humor um, and as I said, most of the, most of the, most of the communication influences on me really have been comedy writers and stuff. I grew up in a world of Monty Python and all this kind of stuff. And, and humor is very disarming. Um, yes. and so that's what, that's what the book attempts to do. Oh, I love that. That's, you know, that's a whole technique in and of itself, as you've said, using humor and storytelling, imagination and storytelling and humor 
to have conversations with people we love about faith. Um, yeah. One last question I want to get to. Um, our connection to you is, is really through Wycliffe College. So I just want to yeah. get a sense of... Uh, whether people are, you know, going to be a pastor, a minister, a full-time person or not, what do you think in today's world, what is the place of seminaries? What is the place of Christian education in the world of Christianity and all this kind of stuff that we're talking about today? Um, And in the world where the internet has lots of answers for everything, what do you think is the place of the Christian education system? Wow. Do you think it's working? I mean, maybe that's a whole other thing we have to say. But, There's a whole I other mean, podcast right there, yeah. <laughs> are we doing it right? Are we? Are, is it all a waste of our time and money? <laughs> I think we're learning to do it right. I think. I think certainly, perhaps the the more you know, the more the more traditional role of the Christian seminary preparing men and women for ministry is still there. And, and that's still there's a role for that. We also need Christian academics trained and equipped to go to go deep. You know, I deeply appreciated my seven years in doctoral work on 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 Islam in a wonderful seminary in the UK. So there's a great the role for seminaries. However, what I think is also happening because we live in a fast paced digital world, I think some of the what we need to be equipping people with is changing, and also that the training patterns are changing. You know, I think there are lots of men and women who perhaps are on the you know aren't going to go into full time ministry. Um, or church ministry, but they're in the workplace and they want to stay in the workplace and they want to get trained and equipped to be able to reach their friends and their peers. And I think seminaries have a great role to do doing that. And so there's a role for, you know, part-time study, occasional study, online study. And then the last thing I think we need to be we doing, I think for seminaries to be their most effective, Joanna, they need to understand the questions. You know, one of my favorite mm. Bible passages on this, Acts 17, you know, where Paul is there in Athens and does this great speech at the end of the Areopagus, you know, a very famous passage. Um, it's often missed the fact he spends the time before he does that wandering around, looking at the culture, looking at the temples, looking at the stat, taking it all in. He listens to the questions of the culture. And then right. when he goes and presents right. the great and the good, he's ready to go. And sometimes I think seminaries, we haven't moved with the times and we're still answering the questions of 60 years ago. Um, the digital age, some of the questions are the questions from 60 years ago because some of the classic questions, you know, still round, but there are some new questions. And so I think, yeah, making sure we're really taking uh, the time to teach people to engage the questions their friends are asking. And perhaps the best way to do that is be listening. I think seminaries, you know, need to make sure we're really taking the time to find out, you know, where where is the culture pressing, what pressing, where are the pressure points and how can we then equip men and women who come, whether they're being trained for the ministry or being trained just to be salt and light in their workplaces so that they can really talk to the spirit of the age and the questions people are asking. Yeah. Andy, I wish we had more time, as I've said, it's uh uh, it's just so great to talk to you and to get into your brain a little bit, see how you think, see how you approach these conversations. Uh, just appreciate your your ministry and how you are traveling all over this Western world of ours, uh, having such significant conversations that I think are are making people more curious about this this Jesus God. And so thank you for that. I'm going to connect everybody well. to to links to you in the show notes. People can find you, people can find all this stuff. But um, is there anything else before we before we sign off? Uh, any last encouragement you want to leave our listeners with as they venture out to talk about Jesus? Well, I think I'd, I would leave people with exactly that, Joanna, to say that for listeners, uh, you know, tracking with this, just I think really pray and uh, perhaps ask Jesus to put on your heart, you know, a friend, a neighbor, a colleague that he would have you share with. And then just 
yeah, in the power of the spirit, have the have the courage to step outside your your comfort zone. A great opening question. I think so often we don't know how to start these conversations. You know, a great opening question is if you've got a friend or a neighbor or a colleague is to find the opportunity of a coffee over lunch or something to say, look, you know, I've known you for years and I suddenly realize I've never asked you what you believe about the deep questions of life. I'm a Christian, but I don't, I've never, I've never asked you what you believe or don't believe. Would you tell me? I'd love to know what you think life mm. is about. Um, and do it in an open-ended way because then your friend's not going to feel threatened. And then follow that up. Ask ask good questions. Don't talk about Jesus and that conversation until you've at least spent 45 minutes to an hour asking your friend questions about what they believe or don't believe. You'll win a lot of respect because you have given them the space. And that is far more likely your friend will then say, well, okay, so you're a Christian. I've never asked you about that. What, is, what does that mean? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Take, take the opportunity, especially, especially you know, we're recording this at Christmas, but I don't know when this is going out. Um, but, you know, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, lots of opportunities in the year when those times come more naturally. Awesome. Well, we're encouraged, we're challenged, we're equipped. Thanks so much for your time today. It's been great. Thanks, Joanna. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andy, for that conversation. It was amazing to hear his thinking and get inside his brain really about how we can share our faith, communicate Christianity in a way that doesn't sound like we're a jerk and doesn't sound like we're an idiot. Next week, we have my friend James Ruddle on the podcast. He's actually going to be the first ever visual artist we've had on the podcast. So it's about time we had an artist, like a visual artist on the podcast. He's going to be talking about performance art, then his work that includes painting and fire and film pieces and how he uses those with a live audience and often church audiences. So he's going to give us some insights into the history of art and the church, as well as the power of performance art. Thanks so much to the partners that make Word Made Digital possible this season. I want you to join 1,500 young adults from across the Toronto area and beyond for the ninth annual Fluid Young Adults Gathering. It's going to be on Saturday, March 7th, 2020. So I don't want you to miss it. I'm going to be there. I go every year. You can go to fluidgathering.com for more information and check the link in the show notes if you want to buy some tickets or check out more about the lineup of speakers. Also, Compassion is looking for volunteers in Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Calgary, and Vancouver for the King and Country Tour. So you can email volunteer at compassion.ca for more info. And if concerts aren't your thing, you can go to compassion.ca slash volunteer to find out all kinds of other ways you can get involved with Compassion and volunteer your time to make a meaningful impact to change the world. Of course, thanks to Wycliffe College, who's been with us for the last two seasons. If you want to know about more about classes like Andy Bannister's, you can go to the link in the show notes. You can study in class or online, full-time, part-time. Maybe you just want to take a course or you want to grow in your discipleship in that way through just a small dive into theology or you want to take a full degree program. You can do that and you can check out more at wickliffecollege.ca slash wordmadedigital. Okay, see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world. 